Okay, well, as you know, today is Father's Day, so I can think of no better day to just jump into the book of Proverbs and talk about masculinity. Uh, we owe a great deal to our fathers, not just because without them we wouldn't be alive, we wouldn't be here today, um, but because of the important roles that fathers play in our lives, in our communities and in the world. Fathers enculturate us, they pass on values, they give a great sense of worth and dignity and provide people with a sense of honour and respect. And uh, for many of us who had the great privilege of having fathers that were present as we were growing up, it's a, a time of great joy, it's a time of great um, admiration in who our fathers were and what they've done for us. Uh, but for some of us, it's a bit of a sore spot um, if we haven't had the greatest fathers, our fathers weren't there, or unfortunately, you know, sometimes our fathers um, die. And it's, uh, it's not fun to, have, uh, to grow up in a world without a father. Um, in Proverbs 4.1, it says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. We here at Gospel Church, we're blessed because we have many fruitful, manly, courageous, and God-fearing fathers. And I thank God that He has placed those men in our church because we need those kind of men. By God's grace, you know, we're going to have a couple more fathers this year. Um, well, one next year. Uh, and my hope is, and my prayer is, that we will continue as men to fulfill our calling as fathers, to fulfill our calling as men, um, and to be able to live up to what God has called us to in His Word. And today, uh, we're not going to specifically talk about fathers. I know it's Father's Day, fathers will come up in my talk, mind you, but we're going to be talking about masculinity. Masculinity. And importantly, the shape of masculinity. What is the shape of masculinity? What does God want from us? We're all connected to men. All of us here in this room are connected to men. We've all had fathers. We've all, some of us have sons. Some of us have brothers. Some of us have husbands. And if you don't have any of those four things, you at least have men that are friends to you. You have men that are your pastors that are involved in your church. And some of you mums, you're raising boys. And so you need to know what it means to raise a masculine boy. So all of us are connected to boys, all of us have influence on boys, so what's the point of doing it if we have no idea what men are, what masculinity is, and what we're trying to achieve? And so we're going to delve into it, the shape of masculinity, and the first thing I want to say is, masculinity is a dangerous thing. It is a very dangerous thing. For some people, when they hear the word masculinity, it instills fear in them. And some of them, I don't blame them, 93% of the Australian prison population are you could probably guess it, men. 90% of all sexual assaults are perpetrated by men. Men are dangerous, very dangerous. After the fall in the garden, what is the first sin we read of? Cain, killing his brother Abel. In the same chapter, we hear of a guy named Lamech. He's even worse than Cain. He has murdered even more people and he's a womanizer. And you could probably distill male sin down into two things, murderers and um, uh, womanizers, I guess, in a way. You know, this guy Lamech, he takes multiple wives within a generation. We've already seen how much sin can pervert what God has created. Masculinity, which was originally created by God to be a good thing, a constructive thing, uh, and, you know, in order to build societies, has turned into a force of destructive, reckless abandon. And so we're not looking at that kind of masculinity today. 
grab that masculinity, throw it in the bin. I don't want to hear about that kind. We're going to hear about the kind that God has designed, the good kind, the kind that we like. When Jesus gets hold of a man, he transforms him. He transforms him. In the church, uh, sometimes we associate that transformation with making sort of effeminate men. Uh, you know, like when Jesus takes hold of a man, turns him into a bit of a girl, turns him a bit feminine. Um, you know, he's in more in touch with his emotion. But no, that's not the case. Christian men are not just nice guys. They're not white knights. They're not wimps. They're not pacifists. They're not cowards or boys who know how to shave. Christian men are dangerous men. Why? Because they are cast in the image of Jesus. And Jesus was the most dangerous man who ever lived. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about masculinity. It has a lot to say. It's primarily a book written by men for men. Not entirely, but primarily. And even more important, it's written from a father to a son. One of the most important relationships in the world is a father and his children. So today we're going to hear from our one true father in heaven, from his word, and he has some choice words for his sons in this room, and by extension, to some extent, his daughters. So here's what a Proverbs man looks like. Here's what a biblical man looks like. I've got five points for you. First one, lords. Second, husbandmen. Third, saviors. Fourth, sages. And fifth, glory bearers. Now, if you didn't understand some of those words, don't worry, neither did I when I first heard them. Um, and I didn't come up with this list. I heard this from guys like Douglas Wilson, um, Bill Mauser, and uh, Brian Sorvey. Uh, so we're just going to dive into it. I'm going to show you what I mean. So the first one, masculinity is lordly. Masculinity is lordly. Listen to some of these examples from uh, Proverbs. Uh, we're just going to chuck them up on the screen. Uh, Proverbs 12, 24, uh, the hand of the diligent will rule. Proverbs 17, 2, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 8, 15 to 16, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When men rule well, it leads to rejoicing. The people rejoice when men rule well, when there's flourishing, but wicked rule leads to misery. It says, you know, the people groan, they're groaning in pain because it is a terrifying and terrible thing to be ruled by wicked men. And the book of Proverbs has this expectation for sons that if you walk wisely, you're going to end up ruling. You're going to end up in positions of authority. Whether you're a servant or you're a prince, walking in wisdom will lead to leadership. God has put within man a desire to rule. He's put within us a desire to rule. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given the right to rule the garden and extend the borders of the garden to the ends of the earth. It's a common theme that you see almost throughout the whole Bible. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Men, 
We were made to have dominion. Adam was given a special role. That special role was to take dominion over the world, to fill it and to subdue it. And this is built into men. We have these strong desires to want to conquer. We want to go out and conquer whole worlds. We want to conquer planets. We want to climb impossible mountains. We want to cross the harshest sea. We want to reach the South Pole and the North Pole. We want to survive in the harshest environments. Uh, We want to conquer the heart of a woman uh, that we love. We're made to go out and take dominion. It's part of what it means to be a man is to want to go out to conquer, to take dominion. We have these strong desires. Why? Because God put them there. God placed those desires with us. He made us to be like that. It doesn't matter what the terrain is. It doesn't matter what, who the people are. You put a boy in a backyard and he will try to subdue that backyard. Uh, Doug Wilson calls this the uh, fort building impulse. When you give a boy a backyard, he'll build a fort. You give him an upper atmosphere and he'll build a space station. Men have this innate desire to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and to take dominion and subdue it. And God doesn't say no to that. And some churches try to push that down. They don't like that impulse. They try to crush that impulse. But the Word of God does not say no to that. The Word of God resoundingly says yes. God says, I put that there. And so it's such a travesty when we have these men who would much rather sit at home on the couch watching TV watching TV shows, playing video games, rather than getting out into the world and taking dominion, rather than getting out and exploring the world and going out and conquering and doing all that God has commanded them to do. Men were created to rule. We were created to be lords. But lords who recognize higher authority, lords who recognize God's authority. And so men are fallen, we're sinful, Sometimes we like to set ourselves up as these sort of pretend lords. Now, Proverbs deals with this quite extensively. Proverbs 16, 12. I'm just going to quote one. Uh, it is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by justice. When men exert their leadership and rule in an evil way, it's an abomination to the Lord. When men use their leadership and when they fail spectacularly, uh, the population uh, starts to begin to abandon God's plan for men. The, the people who are most against a message like this one are the people who have probably been hurt the most by men. And they will violently fight it because they'll think what I'm saying is that is to be commended. That, kind, that style of man is the kind of man that I'm talking about, but that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm not talking about a Cain or a Lamech. Godly men are not sinful tyrants but God-fearing followers of Jesus Christ who follow Jesus' example. That's the kind of men I'm getting at. That's the kind of lordship I'm getting at. We take dominion and rule just like our Lord Jesus did before us. He turned this handful of boys into these amazing men that went out and started churches in places where you get killed for it. That's the kind of men we need. We need a generation of men like that who go out, take dominion for the kingdom of God. Men need to learn to be adventurous and visionary. I'd rather five men with courage and vision than a thousand men who sit on the couch. Second point, husbandmen. Masculinity cultivates. Now, the word husbandman, husbandry, is a really old term, super old term. It actually has nothing to do with being a husband. Nothing at all to do with being a husband. It basically means a farmer. 
A husbandman is a farmer, someone who cultivates and works the soil to produce a crop, to produce a yield, to bring fruit forth. Uh, Brian Sorvay uses this term shepherd farmer. And so what does that have to do with masculinity? What does husbandman, farming, all that kind of stuff have to do with it? Uh, Proverbs 27, 23 to 27 says this, uh, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever and does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass is gone and a new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milks goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance for your girls. This is why husbandry is essential to true masculinity. Pay attention to what God has given to you and ensure that you provide and care for those things that God has put into your care. Cultivate your family. Cultivate your community, your environment. What's under your control should flourish. If you are living with the kind of masculinity that the, uh, the gospel and the word requires. Men are not just designed to conquer new worlds, but to settle those new worlds they conquer. We don't just take ground, we cultivate ground. Genesis 2.15, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Look at that language, work it and keep it. Ruling, if taken in isolation, may just turn men into pirates and thugs and bandits and gang members. Men might build bridges and space stations, but they must also oversee what they plant. What they establish, they must cultivate, they must oversee. Whether we plant gardens or marriages or families or churches or towns or nations, men take barren soil and turn them into civilizations. Men tend the garden that God has placed us in. Whatever garden he has placed you in, tend and keep it. Tend it and keep it. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the, spirit, the springs of life. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. The book of Proverbs is primarily clear that the first thing you need to tend to is your own heart. Cultivate your own heart. The one thing you actually have real rulership over in this world is your heart. Tend it. Discipline it. Keep it. That's your first step as a man. It's your first step. Fear the Lord first. Deal with your sin before you go out and take dominion and cultivate and care for others. But once you have dealt with it, uh, that's when you need to start to learn to cultivate those things that God has given you. Uh, Proverbs 4, 1 to 4. Listen to this. Pay close attention to the language in this. Uh, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one inside of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Do you hear the way that the father interacts with his son here? The father interacts with his wife here, tender to his son. He's only got one wife. He's only got one woman that he chases. He's not chasing women on the streets. He's not chasing women on a, TV, uh, on a computer screen. And he's taught his son the ways of the Lord. That's a father who cultivates. 
That's a father who keeps his garden. It's a father who loves and chastens and goes after the hearts of those that are placed under his rule. Proverbs 23, 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. There is great joy in cultivating. It's being the father of a wise son, of a wise family. Greatly rejoice in your family. Cultivating your family, your children, your friends, and seeing the wisdom that you have imparted will bring gladness to you. God doesn't ask you to cultivate because he wants to dampen your party and take away your autonomy, but he gives you responsibility as an act of grace to you, to increase your joy, to make you glad. I'm just going to go rapid fire through a bunch of Proverbs, so just pay attention to the words as I'm reading them. Uh, Proverbs 12, 11. Uh, whoever works the land will have plenty of bread. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fail, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Work hard, men. Work hard. Tend your fields. Sharpen each other. Grow in wealth, but don't trust in those those riches. Discipline your children. Why? Because you love your children. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly uh, supplied. There is no joy in being lazy. You might think there is, because you don't have to do anything. It's fun. It's great. You can just sit on the couch, watch whatever you watch, do whatever you do. But the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The man who tends his garden, who cultivates his garden, will bring forth a fruitful and joyful life. So number two, husbandmen. Keep that one. In your, in, in your mind. Uh, three, saviors. Third point of masculinity that we see from the scriptures, saviors. Masculinity delivers. Men are made to protect, to rescue, to redeem, to restore. Men are made for violence, to cut off the heads of giants, to march out to battle, to defend one, one's homeland, to give our lives to our family so our families can go free. Men are made to pick up weapons and use them to defend against evil. Proverbs 24, 10 to 11. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Adam in the garden fainted when a dragon came into his kingdom, into his domain. His cowardice plunged the entire human race into sin. The world is fallen because Adam was a coward. He did not save his bride. Godly, courageous men stand firm and fight when their families, their churches, their communities, their nations are threatened. Godly men rescue people from death. N.D. Wilson says this, he says, God gave Adam a dragon to fight before sin ever entered the garden. Adam had a dragon to fight before he had ever sinned. This is part, this impulse, this desire to save and deliver, it comes from God. Uh, If you read literature written by men, you read books written by men, the the storyline is almost always the same, isn't it? 
The main protagonist is this man who risks his life, who faces insurmountable odds in order to rescue. Whether he's rescuing his love, he's rescuing his family, his country, you know, would think about Taken, rescuing his daughter gets taken from, um, you know, that's like every father's like dream to go and do something like that, go rescue his family. Uh, we rightly see those kind of men as noble, those men who give up uh, their autonomy and give up their, um, their, their comfort and go out and fight for the sake of others. And there's a reason why those storylines are so popular. It's not just popular with men, they're popular with men and women. After Adam and Eve sinned, uh, you know, God confronted the serpent in Genesis 3.15. You guys will remember what he said. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we've got this offspring, you know, language, right? We know that Jesus Christ is the offspring of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. Uh, men who follow Jesus Christ are following the dragon slayer. We know that Satan in the book of Revelation is referred to as a great dragon. And Jesus, this dragon slayer, if we claim to be men who follow Jesus, then we have to, and we're following his examples, then we have to be dragon slayers. We have to slay those dragons. That's why boys should grow up with wooden swords and plastic guns. Because one day, they may need to take up real swords and real guns and to save and protect those they love and protect their uh, dominion from dragons and we know that this world is full of dragons and we need men who can slay them and if we're our churches are full of cowardly effeminate men who think it's wrong to take up the sword and protect your family from dragons well we're just back in the garden with adam adam had dominion over the garden and he let that dragon in he didn't cultivate his uh, the garden he didn't save his wife and Adam failed to save his bride in that moment when the dragon came. But where Adam has failed, Christ succeeded. When the dragon came and threatened Christ's bride, what did he do? He defeated the dragon. And so how do we fight? How do we beat these dragons? The same way Christ did. By giving up our lives. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, fight well. Give your lives. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your families. Fight for your communities. Fight for your church. The church is already full of lazy, passive, effeminate men. I don't want to add you to that list. We've already got enough of those kind of men. We need men who are going to take up the sword of the Spirit and go out and slay those dragons. That's the kind of men we need. Men must learn to be strong, to be sacrificial, courageous, and good. Point four, sages. Another old term, but I couldn't think of a better word for it. I almost said wise guy, but that has completely different connotations. Uh, it just means a wise man, a wise man, a philosopher, a scholar. Uh, men are made to be learned and wise. The sage is a man who is great in wisdom. You know, you can think of that like real patriarchal figure, you know, the great-grandfather that has this abundant, flourishing family and they all come to him and ask him for advice because he's wise and he has good things to say and he loves and he cares for people. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. Uh, wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs is personified as a great lady. Uh, Proverbs 1.20 says, 
Uh, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. Uh, just read Proverbs 1 to 9. Proverbs is this lady that calls out and says, boys, listen to me. Pay attention. Follow my paths. When a man grows up into wisdom, he becomes what we call a sage. Now, we wouldn't use that word now, but you understand what I mean. Uh, men must uh, relearn the masculinity of study. They must relearn the masculinity of learning, of books, of intellectual discussion. These things are essential. They're essential. The last thing most boys, most men want to do is study. Let's be real about it. We don't really want to study. It's not something you think, yeah, I want to do that. Like, I want to do it, but I'm a bit weird. I've, I've always been weird my whole life growing up. Like, um, you know, reading things and knowing all these random facts. Um, but we need to learn how to study again. We need to learn how to learn again. And men would much rather play, you know, boys in school, they'd much rather play outside and, you know, do the whole saving thing, run out with wooden swords than sit down and read a book. But things like literature, philosophy, poetry, theology need to be at the center of every godly masculine man. We need these things. Simple-minded, foolish men, men can't rule well. They just can't. Men who don't know anything, men who haven't learned anything, men who don't, haven't grown in wisdom cannot rule well. They cannot cultivate well. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to combat things that are in this world. Now, fists might protect your community from thugs, but they're not going to protect them from sly serpents. People who come in with arguments, people who come in with um, false teachings and lead people astray, what kind of, the kind of men we need then are learned men who know the truth, who know the word. We need sages, we need wise men, learned men, educated men, um, who can combat the prevailing zeitgeist, who can challenge the thought leaders. If we don't have those kind of men, we're sitting ducks. We're sheep to be led, led to the slaughter. If we're going to think we can survive in this world where there's this wisdom and this uh, false wisdom and false intellectual um, realms that come up against the gospel, we need men who can defend the gospel, who can provide apologetics, who can defend God's word because God's word is good and we need to rest in this. We need men who are able to do that. Um, and, and this is what Jesus was. He was a sage. He was a wise man. And we know in Luke 2.40, talks about Jesus saying that, you know, the child grew and became strong. It's talking about Jesus growing up, filled with wisdom. He became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus grew in wisdom. Godly men, always, to the end of your age, to the end of your years, I should say, need to be growing in wisdom. Because Jesus needed the wisdom to combat the Pharisees, to do battle with the devil in the wilderness. He quoted scripture from memory. That's the kind of men we need in our church who have internalized the word of God. And so the word of God, first importance, we need men who know the scriptures, sages in the word of God. But we also need Christian men to have knowledge in maths and science and literature and logic and debate and rhetoric. We need to be skilled and educated. Uh, this is why Christians started schools and educated people. This is why Christians have a high view of education because uh, God has hidden things in this universe and he has required men to go out and discover them. Uh, Proverbs 25.2, uh, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Discovery, experimentation, 
finding out all the hidden laws, all the amazing things, either out in the universe or even the tiniest little particles, men go out and find those things and try to pull them apart and understand them. We need sages. It's our duty to discover this because it's worship. To go and do that is worship. To worship a God of order who created all these things, to go out and find out those things is worship. And men need wisdom desperately. If there's anything we're going to get from the book of Proverbs, I mean, like, this is probably the main point of the book of Proverbs, go get wisdom. It's like the main point, isn't it? Uh, this is both for men and women. Seek wisdom, seek knowledge. Study is hard. Most young boys despise it, but it's necessary. Hebrews 12:11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is hard. Study is hard. Getting into books is hard, but it yields its fruit later. Once you've done the work, once you've understood things. And man, I, honestly, men who are not interested in learning and discovering things, to me, are just really boring men. Like, what kind of conversations can you have with them? They don't know anything. There's no curiosity. There's no desire to grow. In a fallen world like ours, we need teachable, diligent, studious, and thoughtful men. Number five, last one. Glory bearers. Men are the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says this, Man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, immediately you may think that sounds kind of heretical. Because, you know, you, if some of you guys will know Isaiah 42.8. Uh, God says, my glory I give to no other. That's not what it's talking about. God's not giving us his glory. Paul is definitely not saying that. Men do not take from the glory of God, but rather men image God and bring him glory. We bring God glory in a specific way, and I'll show you what that means a bit later. It's not that men share the glory with God, but that we bring him glory. We bring God glory. Listen to the language of these Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 17.6, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, but the glory of children is their fathers. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 4.8, prize wisdom highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 20.29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Uh, just an aside, men don't dye your hair no matter what. Gray hair is your glory. Masculine men, image God. I mean, I've got a few greys apparently. My barber said, oh, you've got a few greys in here. And part of me was like, oh, should I, should I dye it? I'm not going to. I'm not going to dye it. After reading that, I was like, I'm not going to dye it. I'm going to get greys before my time. Unearned glory at this moment. <laughs> uh, but men obtain glory. They obtain honor. They obtain, uh, they obtain praise, but they glorify God in so doing. They do this by reflecting God's character and imaging him, and no one does this better than fathers. Men do do this. It's, it's wrapped up in masculinity, but no one does this better than fathers. I'll show you why. Uh, Sigmund Freud, famous atheist. Uh, you guys remember me uh, saying this before. He's a psychologist in the 20th century, uh, and he thought God was the, an invention of the human mind. He said that we propel our fathers into the heavens. That's where he thinks God comes from, us propelling our fathers into the heavens. I think he's got it backwards. He's got it the absolute wrong way round. 
we drag God out of the heavens and place him onto our father. We treat our fathers as if they are God. It's this weird, strange impulse in all of us, whether you're a man or a woman. And I'll illustrate it. If, you're, if your father's absent, guess what you're going to think about God? God doesn't care. God is absent. God's not there. If your father is domineering, you're going to think that God is harsh and domineering. If your father's lenient and lets you get away with everything, guess what you're going to think about God? God is lenient. He doesn't care. He's not, he's not involved. Man is the image and glory of God. So fathers, take a good consideration to what kind of God you are imaging. Are you imaging the God of the Bible? Are you reflecting the God of the Bible? Or are you reflecting a false God? And many uh, are a little bit offended by this truth, but it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. They think that, you know, it, it speaks to men having more worth. That verse, 11, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7, that's, that's just ludicrous. Uh, the Bible couldn't be clearer in saying that women and men are equal in dignity, in worth, in value. But we grow up and we know that men and women are different, don't we? It doesn't take, um, you know, a genius to work that out. We know they're different. The problem comes when people try to make comparisons. G.K. Chesterton wrote this famous poem. Listen to it because it illustrates it carefully. He says this. It's really clever. If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. I think he wraps it up really well. All of those things, glorious. All of those things, glorious. The problem is when you try to set one against the other. Man, if man really is a glory bearer, then men must be instructed to grow up into glory and how to fulfill their responsibility to be representative, responsible, and holy. Men must image and do the will of their Father in heaven. So, a lot of content. You've heard these five categories and some might make you uncomfortable. You might look at those and think, yes, that category, nailed it. That is me down to a T. Next category, not so much. (laughs) Some people may be like, yeah, I'm a great leader. When it gets to the sage section, I can't even read a book to save my life. You may think, you know, I'm really good at cultivating things and making sure things flourish. uh, But when I have to reflect God's character, that's not really me. You may think, I'm terrible at leading, I'd much rather follow, I'd much rather be down here, but I'm in the books, I love learning things, I'm happy to combat people on an intellectual level. Men, we don't get a pass from any of those five. Understand where your strengths are, great, work on your weaknesses. Play into your strengths, but work on your weaknesses. Some of us feel uncomfortable with these things. Like in, in, in our hearts, sometimes we may feel uncomfortable. Um, we may feel like uh, we can't really say these things about men because, you know, Cody, you don't have to live with my husband after you come after this. You, you tell him he's the glory of God. I'll never be able to uh, be free from that now. But men do suck. Men are failures. Men often fall for two traps. Brian Sorvey calls them sinful domination or sinful abdication. Both horrendous in the damage they do. Horrendous. Men who exert their rule by either dominating or abdicating cause huge damage. 
Um, I'm not going to quote all the stats, but look up the stats of children growing up in fatherless homes. It's amazing the effect not having a father has on children. It's amazing. Fathers who dominate or abdicate are damaging. They don't lead well. They don't cultivate. They don't rescue anyone from danger. And that just, that's just shown in the facts. Like children are 120% more likely to be abused if there's no father there to rescue them. They don't teach and pass on tradition and faith. They're not sages. They're not there to teach them what truth is, what falsehood is. And lastly, they bear a false image of God. They bear a false God, a God that will not save. And people are so angry and they hate God because of their fathers. It's not God's fault. But they blame what their fathers have done to them on God. We need to repent. All of us, men and women, we all suck. We're all sinful. We all fail to live up to us the standard that God requires of us. We're all sinful. We're all in rebellion towards God. And men, we've failed. We've just got to accept it. But listen to me, um, masculinity is not going to save you. If you go away and you go five points, boom, written them down every day. I'm going to go over these things until I've perfected them. It's not going to justify you. Do do that. Don't, not, don't get me wrong. Do do that. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can transform you, make you into the man that God has designed you to be, made you to be. God has a purpose for you and he wants you to grow up into these five principles. All of them. All of you. doesn't matter who you are. We are transformed by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate man. He has the ultimate masculinity. He is the most ultimate masculine figure. Learn from him. Grow up into him. You remember in Ephesians when we were talking about you take off your old self, you put on your new self, and I identified those things as the old self was the old man. Adam, take him off. He was a coward. He didn't fight those dragons. We don't need him anymore. We need the new self, Jesus. Put on the new man. Put on Jesus Christ. Jesus is our ultimate Lord. All those five categories, apply them to Jesus. Our ultimate Lord rules at the right hand of the Father. He's our ultimate husbandman who cultivates and nourishes and grows his church up into maturity. Um, you know, you can look at Ephesians 5. Jesus is the ultimate savior who saved his bride from the dragon and delivers her from death. Jesus is the ultimate sage. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 to 24, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And finally, Jesus is the ultimate glory bearer of God, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. Because Jesus showed us who God is. He imaged God. Don't look at your dads. Guys, don't look at your dads. Men and women here, don't look at your dads to know who God is. Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the image and glory of God. Men in Jesus, you are now able to pursue adventurous, ambitious, righteous, courageous masculinity. Only in Jesus. This is my charge. Men, go. Take dominion. Tend and cultivate your garden. Slay the dragons that threaten what God has given you. Learn. Grow in wisdom. Read. Become a wise sage. Lastly, glorify and image the God of the Bible who loved you, who gave his life for you, to rescue you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these men who have been such an encouragement to my soul.
Lord, as Proverbs says, is uh, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, and I've been sharpened so much by these men. I praise you, Lord, that you have given these men to the church, and I pray that as they walk out of this sermon, they will be uh, full of courage, full of uh, just energy and desire to want to grow as men, to want to grow up into the masculinity that the Bible puts forward, not the masculinity of the world, not the masculinity of false religion, but the masculinity that comes from true religion, comes from the Bible. Lord, I pray for the women here who have been harmed by men. I pray, Lord, that you would give them an understanding that the masculinity we see in the Bible is good. It's something that they should desire to see with the men in their lives. Lord, those who have sons, I pray, Lord, that you would give the mothers and fathers of those sons a clear vision of masculinity and what they can be uh, growing their children into. And Father, I lastly just want to pray for this church. Bring to us more men that are like this, more men who can f- join the fight, who can slay those dragons. And Father, we thank you for Jesus, the ultimate man who saved us. I pray that these men would press more and more into Jesus and take their marching orders from Jesus. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.